one of my happy memories is watching the pleasure on Father Servé Pinker's face, hearing our next speaker speak on the relationship between the infused and the acquired virtues. Father Pinkers was surprised to see a philosopher who was interested in such questions. I can say that Professor Angela McKay-Knoble is really, in the English-speaking world, one of the people who has drawn attention to the relationship and the priority of infused cardinal virtues in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And uh, along with uh, some heated exchanges with other philosophers, really drawn attention to the interesting question, the relationship between infused and acquired virtue in Aquinas. She is professor, uh, associate professor of philosophy at Catholic University of America. She did her studies with someone who is familiar to this uh, gathering uh, with Fred Fredoso at the University of Notre Dame. She also had the privilege of studying with Brian Shanley at CUA. And so it was kind of a sense of going back home uh, to be able to teach at that amazing faculty of philosophy at Catholic University. It's not on infused virtue that she will uh, speak to us today, but on uh, uh, human rights. So I, uh, without much more ado, uh, Angela McKay-Knoble. So if only Father Thomas Joseph had assigned me to talk about something that I know something about. Um, so it's been fun preparing this talk. Um, Father Thomas Joseph asked me to contribute to this conference. He told me, I believe he told me that I could put this talk together in like half a day. And then he assigned me to talk about rights. <laughs> so after much, much, much more than half a day trying to get my head around this topic, I can only say that he has an astounding and entirely inaccurate perception of my intellectual ability. Um, but in the meantime, I've learned a lot, and that's what matters, right? Um, most of my learning time has been spent in confusion. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, human rights aren't in Aquinas. Aquinas talks about the right, the object of justice, uh, which Father Dominic gave us a very thorough discussion of this morning. For another thing, scholars who are united in their affection for Thomas Aquinas, all of whom would likely describe themselves as Thomas, have dramatically different things to say about whether a theory of human rights can be grounded in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. Some of them seem to view the notion of human rights as the root of every modern ill. Others find them entirely consistent with and even implicit in Aquinas' own writings. So that's one source of confusion for me. Another source of confusion, though, is that I have been hard-pressed to see a clear winner in these arguments. Those who find a robust theory of human rights incompatible with the thought of Thomas Aquinas really, at the end of the day, seem to find the rights theory espoused by Hobbes and Locke incompatible with the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And it is. But it's not clear why that would rule out grounding other, less objectionable theories of human rights in Aquinas. Those who are optimistic about a Thomistic theory of rights, on the other hand, don't seem to me to do very much to spell out exactly how such a theory can be grounded in Aquinas. 
So at the end of all this, I am somewhat less confused. On the assumption that my initial confusion will be shared by others, though, I'm going to spend a lot of time on some more basic questions before turning to Aquinas. In what follows, I'm first going to discuss the question of what a right is and of exactly what the question of whether there are rights in Aquinas amounts to. Then I'm going to describe why at least some Thomists think that Aquinas' moral theory cannot sustain an account of rights. And I will argue that all they really show is that a specific understanding of rights cannot be rooted in Aquinas. Then uh, finally, I will turn to Thomas Aquinas. I will argue that there may be a way to ground a theory of human rights in Aquinas, but uh, if we wish to do so, we may need to look in different places than some people look. Okay. So one of the most confusing things about rights is that it's hard to find a clear definition of them. Some people talk about them without defining them. Some people who define them go to the opposite extreme and offer so many different definitions and divide rights into so many kinds that it becomes next to impossible to keep them all straight. But some definition has to be given. I'm going to think through a definition offered by Gene Porter. Gene Porter offers a very def general definition to which she adds a refinement. I'm going to start with that two-part definition and then offer some thoughts about how the two parts might be related and what recognizing either part does or does not commit us to. I will then use these distinctions to more precisely define exactly what scholars disagree about when they debate whether or not a notion of human rights is compatible with the thought of Thomas Aquinas. So I'm going to start very far from the lectures we had this morning, but hopefully by the end we'll arrive back in the same place. Okay. So Porter first defines rights as, quote, expressions of claims and duties that persons have over against one another by virtue of their mutual participation in an objective moral order. So I'm going to call I'm going to pretend I'm an analytic philosopher and, and call anything that fits this very general definition an R1 right. Okay. So if the, moral object, if the objective moral order prohibits stealing, then by the very fact of that prohibition, participants in the moral order will have corresponding duties to and claims on each other. And prohibiting theft, the objective moral order of which I am a part, imposes on me a duty conferred by the mere fact of my membership in that objective moral order not to take things that are not mine. The mere fact that I have such a duty to others implies that they in turn have a claim against me. They can justifiably demand that I not take what is theirs. To put the same point in different words, they have an R1 right not to have their possessions taken by me, a right which corresponds to my duty not to take their things. The question of what R1 rights we have can be decided relatively easily we need only look at what the objective moral order requires of us in our interactions with others. R1 rights would seemingly be derivative of any moral theory that recognizes the existence of an objective moral order. But, as more than one scholar has pointed out, if all assertions about rights are assertions about R1 rights, then rights are not particularly interesting. Anything captured by the notion of right could equally be expressed via the notion of the duties that correspond to them, or better still, 
by exploring how the objective moral order requires us to treat others. It is likewise worth pointing out that acknowledging our one rights implies acknowledging an objective moral order, but it wouldn't seem to necessarily imply acknowledging anything more specific about that moral order until we got to the details. Okay. Um, but the, I think the more important point is this. Most of those who, in modern society, make assertions about human rights uh, seem to intend to assert something more specific than an R1 right. Consider what opponents of abortion mean when they say the fetus has a right to life. If the objective moral order prohibits the deliberate killing of innocent people, and if it can be shown that the fetus is an innocent person, then the objective moral order would seemingly impose a duty on us that we not kill innocent people deliberately, i.e. fetuses, and the fetus would seemingly have a corresponding claim on us, i.e. that we not deliberately kill them. This corresponding duty right pair, though, is potentially consistent with any number of accounts of why the deliberate killing of the innocent is objectively wrong. It might be wrong to deliberately kill the innocent, for instance, because doing so is detrimental to the common good, or so on. But many of those who believe that the fetus has a right not to be killed seem to believe something more specific about what is wrong with the deliberate killing of the innocent. Something not incompatible with what we have said so far, mind you, just something more specific. They believe that the deliberate killing of an innocent person wrongs the person who is killed prior to and independently of any other consideration. It deprives the person, the fetus, of something the fetus has a right to. To put the point differently, those who believe these things believe that individual human beings are owed certain considerations from other human beings merely in virtue of their humanity prior to and independently of their shared endeavors, social roles, or any other consideration. In addition to all the other wrongs that the deliberate killing of the innocent might involve, then, those who believe in the fetus's right to life believe that abortion is also a wrong against the fetus an offense against the way it, as an individual, deserves to be treated. So again, this is not incompatible with the view that rights are, quote, expressions of claims and duties that people have over against one another by virtue of their mutual participation in an objective moral order. But it is a precision of it. It is asserting that at least some of the claims and duties generated by mutual participation in an objective moral order originate in considerations about what individuals themselves are owed independently of any obligations generated by their common pursuits or the common good of society or whatever. Jean Porter describing this deeper or more specific understanding of a right defines it as, quote, a moral property possessed by an individual that exists prior to social arrangements. And we can we can obviously add is not touched by social arrangements. They're not social arrangements aren't gonna do away with that. Um, so I'm gonna call this the R2 definition of rights. Okay, um, so R2 rights are a specific kind of R1 rights. 
The mere existence of some objective moral order would seem to necessitate our one rights, but not necessarily our two rights. The latter, the, the existence of the latter depends on how the objective moral order conceives of the individual, i.e., on whether it recognizes that the individual possesses moral properties prior to any social arrangement. But if it does recognize this, then fully articulating the objective moral order will mean articulating those R2 rights. So, to summarize, consider the difference in how R1 and R2 might account for an innocent person's right not to be deliberately killed. It seems like R1 would say something general, like this. The objective moral order, for whatever reason, fill in anything you like, prohibits the deliberate killing of the innocent. Thus, I have a duty imposed on me by that objective moral order not to deliberately kill innocent people. Innocent people have a corresponding claim against me, namely that I not deliberately kill them. But R2 would seemingly say something like this. The wrongness of deliberately killing the innocent is rooted in the value of innocent life as such prior to and independently of any social role that innocent people have. Something about innocent human life as such commands that it be respected, and part of that respect involves not deliberately taking it. Okay. So, especially because some scholars find the notion of R2 rights dangerous, I think it's worth thinking through what the recognition of them does or does not commit us to. So, specifically, I want to distinguish two different ways that one might prioritize R2 rights. One way that a moral theory could prioritize or recognize R2 rights is to make them the sole consideration in moral matters. Okay? So on this view, any moral matter that you need to address, you just, you just ask what the R2 rights are and you go directly to that. Okay? Um, any moral matter is to be would be addressed on this view solely by appealing to the moral properties that an individual possesses prior to and apart from social arrangements. Moral theorizing on such a view would consist primarily of compiling a comprehensive list of an individual's R2 rights and then evaluating any and all proposed actions in light of that list. And this would imply that R2 rights are really all there are to morality. But a very different way that one's moral theory might include a notion of R2 rights, though, would be by way of what I'm going to call constraint. On this view, all moral matters cannot be addressed simply by considering the moral properties possessed by human beings as such prior to and apart from social arrangements, but such properties both exist and constrain our other moral deliberations. One might think, for instance, that human beings are fundamentally social beings and thus that one cannot deliberate well about how man should live or best pursue his good solely via the consideration of isolated individuals. One might also well think that the common good of society is higher than and takes precedence to the individual good. But there's no obvious contradiction between the views that A, man is a social animal who pursues his good in and through society, that B, the common good of society is higher than the individual good, and that C, there are at least some R2 rights, the respect for which must constrain even the pursuit of man's social common good. These views would all harmonize if, for instance, disregard for R2 rights 
would render it impossible to properly pursue the common good. Okay. All right. So um, now I'm going to turn to why some people um, object to the notion of R2 rights. Okay. Um, so distinguishing R1 and R2 rights and the different ways in which R1 and R2 rights, or the different ways in which one might think R2 rights matter, helps us reformulate our initial question. Aquinas clearly recognizes an objective moral order. So he clearly seems to be able to recognize R1 rights. Fuller accounting of these rights can clearly be obtained via an examination of Aquinas' account of the virtue of justice, i.e., by examining his account of what is use or right in our relationships with others, and Father Dominic did that very well for us. The real question we need to consider is whether Aquinas can sustain an account of R2 rights. And this is a controversial question. For while some insist that the answer is clearly yes, others are as, ins as insistent that the answer is clearly no. One of the most vehement no's comes from Ernest, Father Ernest Fortin. While I will argue that Father Fortin's account is not ultimately correct, I do think he offers an important corrective, one that any attempt to ground R2 rights in Aquinas must be mindful of. Fortin notes that in recent decades, the Catholic Church's ethical arguments have undergone an important shift. While their positions on fundamental ethical questions remain the same, their arguments have not. And Fortin believes this shift is particularly evident in the church's position on abortion. There's no accident, I was using that as an example earlier. Although the church has always held abortion to be gravely immoral, traditional arguments against it, says Fortin, focused on what abortion does to the person who performs it or allows it to be performed. Now, by contrast, the church focuses on the R2 rights of the fetus. Against what he calls the mainstream view, namely that the two arguments are more or less the same and that both are equally rooted in Aquinas' moral theory, Fortin argues that these two arguments are not only different, but that the latter is incompatible with Aquinas. So why on earth would somebody who opposes abortion object to focusing on the rights of the fetus? The answer is not that Fortin thinks the fetus lacks moral value. What Fortin seems to object to is the prioritization of individual rights, to making those the starting point of moral discourse. And perhaps, as we shall see, perhaps to the notion that there are R2 rights at all. I actually think he's, he's willing to go even further. So what's wrong with making R2 rights the starting point of moral discourse? The short answer is that Fortin thinks doing so presupposes an enlightenment view of man. Aquinas and Aristotle held that man is a social animal. He pursues his good in and through the society of which he is a part. An account of man's good and how we ought to pursue it, then, cannot be coherently given by focusing on man as an isolated individual. Because in doing so, one ignores a key component of what man is. Enlightenment thinkers, by contrast, focused on man as an individual and on his pursuit of his own individual good. For enlightenment thinkers, man has by nature certain fundamental rights, rights which exist prior to his participation in society and which he attempts to protect when he enters into society. 
Such a one might well form social contracts with others that they might better pursue their individual good, but those social contracts are still established so that each can better pursue his own private good. This contrast, the contrast between focusing on one's own individual good and focusing on the common good, is what is at the heart of Fortin's criticism of the contemporary focus on R2 rights. Fortin insists that there is a fundamental difference between taking one's own individual good as basic and taking society's good as basic, between focusing primarily on achieving one's own individual good and between focusing primarily on achieving society's good. Fortin describes the move from the former to the latter, the shift that needs to occur between the former and the latter, as a conversion experience. And I think he's really on, I think this is important. I think he's on to something here. So um, many, <laughs> many of you maybe are too young to remember this, unfortunately, but after the, after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, Pat Tillman, the football player, left a successful, lucrative career in the NFL to enlist in the military, and he died just two years later. Okay? Um, and the events of that day moved many other young people to make similar life changes. And it's easy to see elements of a conversion experience in the life changes that many young people made as a result of that day. There is a genuine conversion in the recognition that the good of one's country is higher than and must take priority to any selfish preoccupations, that it is so important indeed that it is worth dying for. And Fortin's point is that there is an unbridgeable gap between these two uh, perspectives. Fortin thinks we can never have the conversion experience of putting our country's common good above our own if we focus on our own inherent pre-political R2 rights. Considerations of R2 rights might move us to go to war, but it will be for selfish reasons rather than selfless ones. How do we get from our own inherent right to life, our own fundamental right to be treated with dignity, to laying down our life for our country? It's not clear that we can, Fortin thinks, except via the conversion experience of recognizing that the common good takes precedence to any personal interests we might have, even to R2 rights. Okay, so, so far, so good. I think Fortin is making an important point one point here, and I think we should take it seriously. And he's certainly right about this much. If recognizing our two rights means discarding our understanding of man as a social animal, if the recognition of our two rights prioritizes the individual good over the common good, then no matter how lofty we make those rights out to be, such a moral theory will seem to presuppose an enlightenment view of man. But at this point, I want to return to the distinction I raised at the end of the previous section, namely the distinction between, one, making R2 rights the sole consideration of a moral theory, and two, making R2 rights a constraint on a moral theory. And I think Fortin has argued, offered us an argument against one, but not against two. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so I think Fortin is right to focus, to worry that a focus on the moral properties individual human beings possess, apart from and prior to their participation in society, necessarily ignores a fundamental aspect of what man is, namely a social being, one who pursues his good in and through the political common good of which he is a part. I think that Fortin is right to think there is a conversion experience in the recognition that the good of one's country is higher to and takes priority to one's individual good. 
I think he is right to worry that treating all moral questions via a consideration of our two rights will prevent that conversion experience from ever taking place. But while these concerns imply problems with treating our two rights as sole considerations of any and all moral questions, nothing so far would rule out recognizing that there are our two rights or that they might constrain even our pursuit of our country's good. So let's think back to Pat Tillman for a minute. Would the sole consideration of his and others' R2 rights to life, freedom, and dignity have moved Pat Tillman to give up his lucrative NFL career in order to defend his country? Possibly. He might have concluded, for instance, that it was the only way to preserve his R2 rights. But I think that Fortin is right to say that such a calculus is rather different than the recognition that the common good of one's country takes precedence to any personal interests one has. The former type of decision still seems like the pursuit of one's individual good. The latter does not. It has a selflessness that the former lacks. Fair enough. But even if we suppose that Pat Tillman has that conversion experience, can't he still recognize that there are our two rights and be constrained by them? Suppose, for instance, that Pat Tillman has a genuine, far-reaching conversion experience. He recognizes that the common good of his country is far more important than his own life, than his own interests, indeed more important than any one person's life or interests. So knowingly risking his own life, he joins the army. But suppose that, while fully believing individual lives and interests to be subordinate to his country's good, Pat Tillman still feels that there are some things he cannot do, even for his country. Suppose, for instance, he feels that no matter how vital to his country's good it might seem, he cannot kill civilians or torture captives, or that he must respect his own life enough not to take it, even if he is captured and tortured. One explanation for having considerations like these, even while prioritizing your country's good, is that you believe in the existence of some, at least some, R2 rights. Not that you believe that they're the only thing you should ever think about, but a belief that they constrain, that they exist and constrain what one may do even in the service of one's country's good. And Fortin's argument thus far, that Aquinas does not share the Enlightenment view of man, does not rule out the possibility that our two rights, while not the sole consideration, both exist and constrain our pursuit of the good. But Fortin, seems willing to entertain the possibility that not only ought R2 rights not be a sole consideration, they ought not even be a constraining consideration. Consider, for instance, what Fortin has to say about torture. A prohibition on torture, says Fortin, is well and good, given the abuses that such practices clearly lend themselves to. But to make a right not to be tortured irreducibly basic, Fortin finds misguided. I'm quoting him here. Fortin says, quote, A world where terrorism of the most brutal sort has become a fact of daily life may not be able to afford the luxury of showing the same respect for assassins as anyone else. Ruling out torture in advance, Fortin thinks, is attractive to us because it spares us the making of tough, complicated, messy decisions the sort of decisions we need, tor we, need <laughs> we need torture, we need prudence for. Horton does not go quite so far as to argue that for torture is justifiable, but he seems willing to go that far. 
His point seems to be that grounding the wrongness of torture and an appeal to an absolute human right to be treated with dignity exhibits shallow thinking. Since Fortin presents this view not merely as his own, but also as the view reflective of the tradition he wishes to defend, this would seem to apply that a theory of R2 rights, even considered as constraints, cannot be rooted in Aquinas. And this is what I want to examine in what follows. Um, <clears throat> so I want to make um, a, a kind of preliminary point before I get to my main point. Um, some people who defend the existence of R2 rights in Aquinas think that it's a, it's a pretty easy move. It's a pretty quick move. Um, and so some people think that we can kind of look at what Aquinas prohibits and allows, and on the basis of that, conclude that Aquinas recognizes some R2 rights. Okay. Um, and that seems to me to be a little too quick. Um, so Gene Porter, for instance, um, thinks that evidence for a, an R2 right to decide for oneself who one marries is found in Aquinas. And as evidence for this, she points to the fact that Aquinas says that the decision to marry or remain celibate, when it comes to the decision to marry or remain celibate, children are not bound to obey their parents and slaves are not bound to obey their masters. Aquinas also says that no marriage is valid unless both parties consent. Uh, but it's just not clear to me that this gets us our two rights by itself. Um, here's why. Um, <clears throat> Porter doesn't give a precise account of what our two right, of what the R2 right to marriage would be. But I suppose we could say it's the claim, it would be something like the claim that respect for human beings as such, apart from any considerations of their social roles, demands that they be allowed to uh, follow their heart when it comes to marriage. In other words, it's a claim that the decision of whether and who to marry is a decision that no one else has the right to make for you, even given any existing considerations about the good of your family or society. You yourself is, are wronged when this choice is taken away from you. And the thing is, it's just not clear to me that this is what Aquinas means when he says that children are not bound to obey their parents when it comes to the decision to marry or not marry. For one thing, Aquinas' claim that one is not bound to obey one's parents when it comes to marrying or remaining celibate occurs in the context of his discussion of obedience, specifically in the context of the claim that when it comes to such decisions, one is bound to obey God rather than man. So it isn't really your decision after all, but God's. Second, Aquinas is describing a very general decision for marriage or celibacy, not the decision to marry um, the dreamy guy next door versus the gouty guy that owns lots of land that can supplement my family's farm or whatever. Um, it would be entirely consistent for Aquinas to claim that given that one has decided to marry, one should marry the spouse one's parents have chosen. Nor again is the fact that Aquinas holds there is no marriage where there is no consent particularly telling. Given what the sacrament of marriage is, there is no sacrament if there is no consent. But that does not preclude the possibility that you would be doing something wrong by refusing to consent to your parents' choice of spouse. Finally, when Aquinas defends virginity, he explicitly addresses the question of the relationship between the individual good and the common good, affirms the priority of the common good over the individual good, and, that, and denies that a choice for virginity reverses that order. 
It is simply that virginity and marriage are not ordered to the same good. Virginity is ordered to a higher good than marriage. So for all of these reasons, I don't think that this is the place to look for, um, for evidence that there, are two, that there are our two rights, or at least more defense needs to be given. And I think similar things um, could be said of some of Aquinas' other apparently enlightened positions. I'm not saying that they're not, but I'm just saying I think more work needs to be done. I think we need to look um, to a little different place to talk about whether an account of our two rights can be grounded in Aquinas. And I think where we have to look is, in, is to his view of the relationship between the individual good and the political common good. Okay? And by way of anticipating where I'm going with all of this, I think we have to consider both the individual good and the political common good in light of the good to which both are ordered, namely the common good of the universe is governed by eternal law. Okay. Um, that Aquinas believes the political common good is higher than the individual good is beyond dispute. But if it can be shown that it makes sense to speak of the individual good, and if it can be shown that Aquinas recognizes a necessary harmony between man's individual good and his common good, and if there are some things which are inherently opposed to the individual good, then it may be possible to speak of the sort of R2 constraining rights described above. I think that the seeds of such a theory can be found in Aquinas's description of the relationship between political and individual prudence. Aquinas's main discussion of political prudence occurs in articles 10 to 12 of question 47 and in Article 2 of Question 50 of the Secunda Secundae. In those articles, Aquinas describes A, what political prudence is, B, why it comprises a different species of virtue than other forms of prudence, and C, who can possess it. Prudence in general deliberates, judges, and commands rightly about fitting means to a due end. But the due ends that prudence finds means to are not all of the same sort. The individual good, bonum proprium, for instance, can be distinguished from the good of the household and the good of the city. Corresponding to all three distinct goods are distinct forms of prudence. The ability to find fitting means to one's own good, one's bonum proprium, says Aquinas, is prudence simpliciter dicta, simply so called. This is how prudence is typically understood and what the word prudence is typically, typically taken to mean. The ability to find fitting means to the domestic good is called economic prudence, while the ability to find fitting means to the common good of the city or kingdom is called political prudence. And what follows, I will be concerned with the relationship between prudence simpliciter and political prudence. Political prudence, in its purest form, belongs to the ruler or rulers of a just regime, but it also belongs in a derivative sense to the citizens of a just regime. Prudence in any form finds fitting means to a due end. Political prudence finds fitting means to the due end that is the common good of the city. Since it is the business of the ruler to direct the city to its good, political prudence properly belongs to the ruler. But the citizens, even if they do not make the city's laws, nonetheless have a share in them. For they, while acted on by the commands of others, nonetheless also possess free will, Thus, says Aquinas, this much is required of them, that they possess in themselves a certain rightfulness of governance where they direct themselves in obeying their rulers. 
And that they do this, says Aquinas, pertains to the species of prudence, which is called political. Although prudence simpliciter dicta is specifically different from political prudence, Aquinas is clear that when an individual possesses both virtues, the former is subordinate to and commanded by the latter. Prudence simpliciter dicta has its own distinct concern, the individual good. But even pursuits with their own distinct aims can nonetheless serve a higher pursuit. Horsemanship, the military art, and statesmanship are all concerned with distinct pursuits, but they are nonetheless hierarchically ordered. The aim of horsemanship is to serve the military art, and military arts in turn serve statesmanship. Aquinas argues that the same sort of relationship obtains between prudence, simpliciter dicta, and political prudence. Each type of prudence is concerned with specifically different things, the individual good on the one hand and the political common good of the city on the other. Nonetheless, the virtue concerned with the higher end is the superior virtue and commands the other. Thus, political prudence, which is concerned with a higher good than the lesser forms of prudence, is superior to and commands the lesser forms of prudence. Prudence simpliciter conversely serves political prudence. I want to note two other aspects of his account of political prudence that are noteworthy. First, political prudence is something that can only be present under the right circumstances. Political prudence is a virtue possessed by rulers and subjects of just regimes. When a regime is unjust, political prudence will not be present in either the citizens or the rulers. So one and the same virtuous individual might or might not exhibit political prudence depending on the regime he is a part of. I'm going to return to that point so shortly. Second, although Aquinas clearly believes that prudence simpliciter dicta and political prudence are specifically distinct, he also insists that the two virtues do not contradict each other. This is because the common good of the city and the individual good are linked. To pursue the common good of the city is de facto to pursue the individual good. He makes this point quite clearly in Article 10 of Question 47 in his response to the second objection. The objector argues that prudence is not concerned with the governance of the people because to be prudent is to be adept at pursuing one's own good. And many of those who pursue the common good neglect their own and therefore cannot be called prudent. Aquinas responds that anyone who pursues the political common good thereby pursues his own good for two reasons. First, because the individual good cannot be achieved without the common good. Second, because the individual is a part of a larger community. As such, he should consider whatever is good for the community to be good for himself as well. So all of this, I think, allows us to speculate about how Aquinas understands the relationship between the individual good and the political common good, and whether his understanding allows for the possibility of our two rights at least considered as constraints. The first noteworthy point is that what is good for the individual considered apart from society might well differ from what is good for the individual considered as a part of society. Although the two forms of prudence ideally exist together, prudence simpliciter dicta can be possessed and op operative apart from political prudence. A person without a regime or a citizen who is a member of an unjust regime can certainly possess the ability to deliberate, judge, and command about fitting means to his bonum proprium. Insofar as he habitually possesses such an ability, he will produce prudence simpliciter. But what the proceeding also makes clear 
is that when one is a citizen in a just regime, one's deliberation about the pursuit of one's own individual good must be conducted in light of one's status as a citizen of the regime, i.e. in the context of rightful obedience to the laws of his society. And this might lead to differences in one's prudential judgments. However, one might have pursued one's individual good outside of society. You have to do it now in a manner compatible with and guided by the requirements of political prudence. Um, but another point that is equally important and that I've kind of um, only been anticipating up until now is that Aquinas makes it very clear that both prudence implicitur dicta and political prudence serve the same ultimate end. Both prudence implicitur dicta and political prudence are ultimately ordered to the common good of the universe as governed by eternal law. Even a citizen's deliberation about his individual good, rightly undertaken, so even if he's doing this outside of society, if he's undertaking it rightly, it's still ordered to the common good of the universe governed by eternal law. And when, it, when that deliberation is taken in, in the context of, uh, as subordinate to the political good, it's still ordered to that same end. For a citizen or ruler of a just regime, deliberation about one's bonum proprium must be guided by prudential deliberation about the common good of society, but even that deliberation, when rightly ordered, still ultimately seeks the common good of the universe governed by eternal law. The importance of this cannot be understated because it provides a distinct rationale for Aquinas' claim that political prudence and prudence simpliciter do not contradict each other. The individual good is properly concerned, pursued in the context of community, but both are ordered to the common good of the universe as governed by eternal law. Okay. Um, and so now I'm just going to hint at what I think this means for a grounding a theory of R2 rights. A lot of what I've said seems to minimize R2 rights because you have to pursue your own good in light of considerations about society. So my own personal wishes about marriage might need to be tempered by considerations of my family's good, and so on and so forth. But it leaves open this possibility, which I think is important. I've been arguing that what is good um, for the individual has to be, in, when properly considered in the right order, is properly pursued in society, and that as pursued, at, when you pursue your individual good in society, in a just society, it's shaped by political prudence. So we have to acknowledge that political prudence directs individual prudence, or, or the pursuit of our individual good. But no reasonable characterization of directing would imply that it will require that we, that something that is directly opposed to our individual good. So the, the rather modest point I want to make is this. Since the individual good is properly pursued in the context of society and shaped and ordered by it, one has to take that into account. And this indicates that a theory of R2 rights as sole consideration would be antithetical to the thought of Aquinas. Nonetheless, it also indicates a possible thesis about acts inherently contrary to the individual good. If something is inherently opposed to the individual good, it will remain so, even when considered in the context of the common good of society. And since acts ordered to the common good of society are simultaneously ordered to the individual good, and both are 
ordered to the common good of the universe as governed by eternal law, it would seem that any act inherently opposed to the individual good would likewise be inherently opposed to the common good. And it is here, I think, that a theory of R2 rights as constraint might be rooted in Aquinas. Yes, thank you for those remarks. It's fascinating. And uh, just uh, two points, and I'm very interested in what you think of these. Uh, first, there is an aspect of this business of the R2 right that seems like a constraint placed by a upon act by potency in the sense that we, we only know what is due or fitting for persons in relation to their motion to the good and, and which is why I was arguing earlier that these are, these are uh, functions of the order to the common good. Uh, and, uh, and hence, there are, in a sense, as many rights as there are just claims implied by the natural law, but these lack the abstraction and the absolutivity for which at least some uh, authors argue. And I, in that light, I'm wondering about what you said, that no, because I don't, I don't actually think you meant this as I heard it. Uh, I suspect not, but I, 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 I thought you were saying that no reasonable claim of the political common good would be contrary to the individual good, but of course the common good may constrain me to give up my life. I mean, if you're in the first wave at, at, at Normandy Beach or if you are, um, uh, there are many different such circumstances where uh, there is a knowable obligation, the cost of which is one's life. So I take it you mean in some genetic sense that the common good isn't antithetic to the individual good, that it doesn't suppress it as, as a totality, but that it, it may in some case. Okay, so, um, so you're making two distinct points. Um, and to, to your first point, um, I'll just say yes, absolutely, right? The, the kind of, the way I began has an artificialness to it, right? Because when you just describe R2 rights, you're kind of like doing the, nothing against analytic philosophy, but you're kind of doing an, an analytic thing and kind of describing something in a vacuum without any context, right? And an important, I mean, a point I took myself to be making was you have to, in order to understand those, you have to think about the common, the end of life, right? You have to think about the common good of the universe as governed by eternal law. You, um, so, um, and it, it's always going to be, and, an, and another related point is that it's, there's always going to be an artificiality to thinking about my good outside of society. Right? There's always an artificial component to it, okay? So that's one thing. Um, now, to your second point, I very much, so my, my whole example of Pat Tillman um, was meant to capture the notion that your society might sometimes ask you to put your life on the line, right? Um, so I very much, and, and in fact, my, the reason why I went through the, the relationship between political and individual prudence is because I think it's very interesting that Aquinas says 
political prudence is higher than, is superior to, and commands individual prudence. When I'm in society, I don't anymore get to do what I want, right? That, and in fact, it's not good, it wouldn't even be good for me to do what I want, right? Because the common good, my good, is only best pursued in the context of the common good of my society. So I'm not, there's none of this like, I have rights and I'm going to protect them, and I, that's, that's a, that doesn't fit. So I wholeheartedly agree with that, okay? The only thing I was thinking of is that, so when I talk about my, um, when I talk, I, I was interested, being an ethicist, I was interested in distinction between putting my life on the line for my country, risking my life to save my country, and chewing on a cyanide pill to avoid being tortured and giving information, right? It seems like no matter how much I care about my country's good, there are some things I can't do. Like I can't maybe kill innocent people to end the war more quickly. It seems like there are constraints, right? That's why that was what was underneath the notion of are there R2 rights as constraints. And so my, my idea, the idea, and I'm like, you know way more about this than I do, and I totally acknowledge that. But um, the idea that I was kind of trying to think through was the idea was a distinction between how I pursue my individual good apart from society and things that are inherently opposed to my individual good in society or without. And that's what I was trying to get at with the notion of R2 right as constraint. That's, that's very helpful because you can, it, it fits in very well with this idea that there are constraints from higher common goods on lower goods and that the teleological chain yeah. goes yeah. all the way yeah. to th to the individual yeah. person. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. I'm glad I survived your question. I was really worried about it. I was wondering if you could say something about what you see as the theological underpinnings of Thomas's notion of, well, obviously, arguably, right, human right. You're not saying rights. Because it's very arguable that without the theological underpinning, the human being created in the image of God with intellect and will, that you couldn't develop any kind of notion of right out of Thomas in, in the modern sense. So do, do you see that as a kind of way forward to really to, to look at the theological underpinnings and see how we may then, from those theological underpinnings, start to dialogue with modern human rights theories? I guess what I the first question that I would have for you um, would be about what is meant by theological. I mean, I'm going to propose an answer, so I'm, I'm going to be rude and not and um, just tell you what I think you think. Um, I, I guess my so my first question was would be what is meant by theological underpinnings, right? Yeah. Because in some sense, if um, you think it's okay to talk about man's natural fulfillment, as I do, right? Um, and if you think that man's natural fulfillment is to say love. God above all things in the manner appropriate to a creature, right? So that's a that's a view, that's a possible view of what man's natural fulfillment consists in. That's already theological for a modern sense, right? But it's not appealing, but it's not appealing to kind of revealed truth, right? So I guess my first question is by theological underpinnings, do you mean revealed theses about grace? Or do you just mean a kind of 
a belief in the existence of God yeah. and I, man's I, ordering to him. More of natural theology. Okay. Than yeah. Theology. Yeah. Then I do think natural theology is a huge part of this. Yeah, I do. I have a, I guess, somewhat tangential question. Uh-oh. Perhaps, well, maybe not. Um, so you spoke about uh, the the good of the the cosmos of the universe, right? Um, what exactly does that consist in? Because um, I, I mean, one way of looking at it is this: I mean, is it just merely that I don't know, say the heavens and the stars look really beautiful, right? Um, but that seems to be like, are we just a merely another uh, part of like the whole machine, so to speak, which clearly can't be what Aquinas is getting at here. So my understanding is you have God is like the common good, right? And you have the order of the universe, and below that, say, um, the good of the polis or the city, right? Political common good, then you go all the way down to family, and so on and so forth. Right? And somewhere in there uh, is the, the heavenly common good, okay, in the order of grace, somewhere it's in the hierarchy. Uh, but the universe is it's like pretty high, right? Uh, so what what is it exactly? So, um, I was using that as a kind of shorthand. Um, and um, what I had in mind, I mean, so, I mean, if, if you think back to Father Brent's discussion of law and the kinds of law, right, um, and uh, all things participate in the eternal law by being ordered to their ends, right, through the kinds of things, by having natures, right? Um, but human beings participate in the eternal law in a special way because they have reason and will. And um, they can order themselves to their end. Okay, so they're not just other thing, you know, the squirrels, they just, they're on autopilot. We're not, okay. Um, I don't, and now if you want, so if you want content to um, the how, um, what it means to properly pursue um, your, the good, the human's end of life. I think you may be asking that. And it's interesting, I think, someone pointed out this, this out at a conference in December. Aquinas doesn't say tons about it, right? And I think um, people disagree on this. Um, I'm not sure that any of those disagreements matter for the thesis that I've defended here, because I was just kind of sketching out how one might defend it. So I'm, I'm skirting your question. I'm not giving a very good answer to it. But I mean, the, the sort of thing that I just said um, to Father's last question, though, I mean, Aquinas does in some places say, uh, indicate, seem to indicate that the end of, the, even the natural end of human beings is to love God above all things in the manner appropriate to a creature. Um, and things commensurate with doing that would be ordered to your end, and things not commensurate to that would not be ordered to your end. Um, so that's not much of an answer. Um, so I think my question is to follow up on Professor Long's question. Um, and it, so it sounded to me like when you were sketching out the second interpretation of R2 rights, okay. uh, Wait, the, the second interpretation the means? As constraints. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that just the way you described it, you, they functioned as, well, I believe this constrains me. Um, and it seems like we don't, that you moved away from that to, no, the constraint becomes something that we can find a reason for. It's not just a function of my belief or an intuition. Um, 
So if, if there's, so the, way, the way you ended up was, if there's something inherent that uh, provides this constraint notion of right, how, how does that not resolve back to an R1 type right? Because now we're making an, a claim about an objective moral order. So the, the reference to, look, I'm part of the universe, so the United States just can't come kill me for no reason. So I've resolved it to how I'm a part of a larger objective moral order. Okay. So so just one thing, and this isn't this isn't the main point you're making. So I'm not. Um, but one thing, it, it well, it, it would be as an R two right. It would also be an R one right, right? Uh, because there are R two rights, as I was defining them, are are a specific kind, right? They're they they imply an additional thesis. But the additional thesis I was interested in is um, that these these R two things are present prior to any consideration of the society that I live in, right? Or any prior to any of my social obligations, right? So um, the idea would be that not being able to kill innocent people, say, um, is, is something, is an obligation that I have, even if I'm not a member of a just regime, even if I'm not a member of any particular society, Etc. 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 So it, I don't think anything prohibits it from being derivative from um, an objective moral order at all, right? It's just, I mean, what I was um, a lot of this is essay is reacting to Fortin, right? And Fortin seemed to be arguing, um, and I, I I checked with people and they told me I was right about this. So <laughs> um, he's he he seems not to think that um, you can talk about um, what an individual is owed apart from society, right? But I also think those same people told me <laughs> that Fortin doesn't have or doesn't seem interested in that conception of the world governed by eternal law. It seems to stop with the consideration of the common good of the polis. And so the, the universe governed by eternal law would kind of link everything together and explain where the the rights that exist even prior to your or your your duties and, and claims that exist even prior to your engagement in society would come from. Um, I'm wondering what you think about this. If you take uh, R1 rights and R2 rights under any interpretation, they yield, those definitions and interpretations yield, I think, only what we commonly refer to as as negative rights. Uh, what, what would you make of somebody who argues that uh, one has a right to uh, everything required to sustain his or her life? What we would call perhaps positive rights. Would you think that you can move from your argument about constraints and R2 rights as operating in some way in Aquinas to something like positive rights also operating. I would, I would say that I think not, that uh, there's a strong difference between uh, a right in, in that positive sense and what uh, might be a requirement of justice, either distributive or commutative justice, as I would think is operative more in Aquinas. 
So this is one of the reasons why I, I opted for my very general definition, and it's also one of the reasons why I was cursing Father Thomas Joseph under my breath when I was trying to get my head. There's, I mean, there's all these distinctions, right? There's um, welfare rights, liberty rights, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm going to retreat. I'm going to retreat to the definitions themselves. Okay, so um, claims and duties imposed by an objective moral order. Okay, I don't see why my objective moral order couldn't impose on me a duty to help those in need, um, or to feed some, give bread to someone who was starving. Right, um, and in that sense, the the starving would have a claim on me, right? And do no wrong if they took an apple from my orchard. Um, so I'm 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 kind of retreating from. Now I'm not I'm not like I'm not gonna go you know argue that, and then you have to give like I'm, I'm, so I'm not I'm not building a whole theory, but I'm just reacting to the question of could it make could it demand that I do something as opposed to not do something. And I'm just saying, I don't know, why not? Why couldn't it? Go. But did I understand that you correctly want to argue against the definition of our one rights in favor no. of the priority of rights in the two sense in the way of constraints? So, Those are opportunities in democracy. Uh, okay, so... Um, actually, I, w I was saying that I think that um, any, so the, the claims and duties imposed by any objective moral order, I was saying I think they, they count as rights. Um, your objective morality is going to have them. They're not what people mean, right? And I was saying what people mean are these, these things that I possess independently of any social consideration, right? And can that, is that an Aquinas? And I, and I said, yes, as constraints. So maybe this is what you're asking. It's what you're asking, is there any R2 right that is a permission rather than a prohibition? Is that what you're asking? Absolutely. Are there okay. any R2 positive rights? What do you call positive rights really just requirements of justice? And I would make a distinction between rights and requirements. It's weird because the way I defined R2 rights was what an individual outside of society possesses. So I'm not sure that you could talk about somebody giving, you know what I'm saying? Like there's something there, by definition, they have to exist in isolation. Um, so maybe the, maybe the answer is going to end up to be yes. I don't know. Um, the, the way this debate is often framed in um, discussions of, uh, in, in Thomas circles and outside, is in terms of the distinction between objective right and subjective right, which isn't exactly the language you use. I was a little surprised you didn't bring that into it. Um, where the distinction is this, that objective right concerns things like doing the right thing or society being rightly ordered. Subjective right is, by contrast, something inhering in the individual subject, right? So it's, it's the sort of thing that's involved in having a claim to something. So framed in that, in terms of that distinction, objective right versus subjective right, you get some writers like Michel Villers saying, you're not going to find anything like subjective right in Aquinas or in Thomism in general. Or to the extent that you do find it in later Thomas, it's a corruption of the tradition and it comes from Occam and all this ultimately. 
And then you get writers like Tierney saying, no, 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 you, can, you don't find it explicitly in Aquinas, but you do find it in the later tradition because it is an organic development. Okay. Now, the reason I bring it up is because it seems to me that subject of right in the sense of something inhering in the individual, in the subject, um, is arguably to be found both in the R1 and R2 conceptions of, mm -hmm. of right. And yet the way you framed it, so, so if, if that's correct, if both R1 rights and R2 rights would count as subjective rights and, uh, as distinct from objective right, um, then it seems like R1 rights would, that, that if you can attribute something like R1 rights to Aquinas or to you know, a Thomist moral philosophy more generally, um, then you, that would be enough to show that at least some of these critics of the idea of natural rights in Aquinas are incorrect. Um, you, you seem to be saying that, well, maybe some of that, some like, I, I might misunderstand you on this, but someone like Fortin might be willing to allow R1 rights but not R2 rights. Um, so anyway, I'm not sure how that this object of subject distinction tracks the distinctions that you made, that you deployed in, in your argument. You just gave a very good explanation of why I did not use the words objective and subjective in this talk. I mean, here's, um, everybody talk, you're right, everybody talks about objective and subjective, okay? But what seemed to me to be the case was that objective-subjective does not track the primary point of dispute, okay? Um, because you're right, subject, having a subjective right means having a claim, right? And as Tierney has well pointed out, you can find claims, right, claim rights, very far back, okay? Um, but, and you're also very right that you can find, sub, an account of R1 rights is going to give you subjective rights, claims and duties, right? It's going to give you an account of subjective rights. But I don't think that the people who are interested in human rights or the rights of the fetus are merely interested in asserting the existence of a subjective claim, right? Because subjective claims, it, it's perfectly consistent for your theory, for any claim you have to kind of correspond to a duty and to be um, something that does not exist until you're in a society or something like that, right? But what I take, and, and I was interested in, um, and, it, and in fact, you're right, I mean, I'm kind of like, um, it was Fortin that was kind of driving the way I was thinking about this because he actually says, yeah, subjective rights, it, that's not the point, right? The point is whether the individual considered apart from society has rights. And I don't think subjective rights tracks that question. Am I answering your question at all? Well, One of, the, one of the um, concerns that is in the back of my mind as I asked what I did is that you seem to imply that, well, maybe you can, obviously you were, you were allowing maybe even a doctrine of our two rights might be found in Aquinas. Sure. But you seemed also to be saying that suppose that it turned out that only an R1 doctrine of, of rights could be attributed to Aquinas or pulled out of a general Thomistic account of moral philosophy. Well, that, you seem to be implying, wouldn't be a very interesting result. It would be a kind of a trivial result. I don't think that's quite right. I mean, I think it doesn't give you what a lot of uh, rights talk fans okay. want. That's okay. the case. That's but I don't think it's trivial either, and, and precisely for the kind of reason that Tierney emphasizes, that the role that that kind of argumentation played in the Spanish scholastics in defending the, uh, 
the, the rights, I don't want to state it in a question begging way, but, but arguing for humane treatment yeah. of uh, American Indians and so forth yeah. uh, as, uh, as human beings who have moral duties and thus a right mm -hmm. to pursue those mm -hmm. duties and so on and so forth. Right. So it does seem to me that the notion, as a matter of historical fact, had real bite, right. even if it's not exactly the R2 notion that modern, you know, contemporary rights theorists are more interested in. Of course. Yeah, and so, yes, absolutely. I, I in no way meant to imply not interesting. I meant not interesting to people who want to defend an R2 conception of rights. Like, that's not what they're talking about. It's, it's rich and deep and interesting, for sure. Um, um, but it's, I'm, I was interested in this kind of specific question that um, I think the specific understanding of human rights um, that is at work in modern, even Catholic, appeals to rights and whether that little specific narrow thing could be, even if it can't, I don't think that you're, um, even if it couldn't, I still think you would have a very rich and powerful moral theory, right? So I wasn't at all meaning to diminish that, yeah. Sort of a following suit here, uh, can I ask you to repeat that element of the definition of the R2 right, that it's a, could you just repeat that? Sure. Sure. Uh, so it's a moral property possessed by individuals prior to and apart from any social considerations. All right. And you're any consideration of their social role. See, I mean, th those are different things okay. that you just, in fact, said. And I, I think that I've realized this is part of the difficulty. If you take the fundamental teleology of persons to be social, not just in a sort of yeah. animal yeah. way, but in a sense that man, by nature and also in grace, is ordered to communio and to this progressively more radiant order of common goods, then there could be no such thing, no context for justifying a claim of right which were outside of that order. But on the other hand, as one said, without referring to any contingent social circumstance, Right. Then it looks as though one is simply looking at the general right. implications of the natural law, um, and it would require right. then only prudence to make the delimitation. Right. I realized in, in the exchange that this is what oh. was... And that, that's very helpful, thank you. So Porter, to the exact quote from Porter is, exists prior to social arrangements. So it wouldn't be a, you, a prior to your social nature, which would be incoherent, but prior to social arrangements. So that, yeah, but that's very, that's extremely helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think this has been fascinating and uh, really helpful. My question is kind of a follow-on on this. As I've been thinking about this, the second version of R2 rights that you described, uh, is it possible that in a way that is just a restatement of R1 rights? Uh, and in fact, what we're talking about when you talk about constraints uh, is just some other aspect of the moral order that R1 is already recognizing. So it's, I mean, to, to put it this way would be then to go back to Dr. Fazer's point that, well, in fact, R1 is, we can make a pretty good case that that's St. Aquinas, and then we could kind of reformulate it as R2 uh, in the second sense. So then we have a vocabulary to talk about rights, but in fact what we're really talking about by those rights is we're sort of taking advantage of the 
the common acceptance today of this notion of rights, but we want to nuance it because we want to, we want to extract or we want to, we want to push out of that definition of rights a kind of absolute reference um, to a kind of hard uh, core that has no reference to an overarching order. And we want to kind of put that back in the order and see that in fact the, the do there is really a function of, of the order. Um, okay, so I, I think I may have lost you at the end there, but I mean, um, so one thing that I, that I meant to try and emphasize through, through the whole paper is I never meant to put R1 and R2 in opposition to each other. I always meant to define R2 as a subset of R1, a way of getting, because remember, R1 is very general, right? Claims and duties opposed by an objective moral order, not saying anything about the moral order, right? But if your moral order is such that it apply it implies that there are moral obligations even prior to social arrangements. If your objective moral order is such that it has those, then it will be an objective moral order, which obviously has R1 rights, that can also sustain what I was calling R2 rights. So I never meant to to kind of juxtapose them, if you will. I meant, uh, I meant it as a way of moving from a general to a more specific, and then talking about how that objective moral order might sustain the more specific. So I don't know if I'm responding to your... I'm going to go ahead and, and end here and talk a little bit about the next session, because some of you don't know about it. But I noticed at some points, the wisdom of my judgment was questioned about <laughs> Professor Knoebel to, uh, to speak to us, but I feel that the prudential wisdom of my judgment was vindicated. Please help me thank Angela.